This is Truth and Focus, your radio program for worldview talk and issues that matter, with Josh Cumston and Gordon Teeson, broadcasting from the studio at Nebraska Christian Schools. Welcome to Truth and Focus. I'm Gordon Teeson. I'll be your host for today's program. Today, we'll be listening to a message that Dave Gibson recently gave at Nebraska Christian Schools on the importance and how to witness to your neighbors. This will be in several parts, so let's join Pastor Dave with today's message. Best introduction I've ever received is I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. I am just a fellow brother in Christ here, and I'm glad to be with you. Thank you for the privilege of being here. It's an honor to be in this school. I've heard a lot about Nebraska Christian and and, uh, what God is doing here at this school. If you want to uh, have a small meeting in the church, have a prayer meeting in the American church. You want to have another small meeting, I call an evangelism training meeting. It's a a guaranteed no-show for a lot of Christians. The Great Commission has become the great omission in the church today. Jesus commanded us to go. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. His first command to his disciples, his first instructions in Matthew 4, 19, he says, follow me, he says, and, and I will make you fishers of men. Then at the very end of his life and ministry in Matthew 28, he gives what we commonly know as the Great Commission. We call it the cause at Grace Church. And that's to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. He says, Lo, I'll be with you always, even unto the end of the age. We have to ask ourselves, what part of go don't we understand? And uh, it's, it's literally, as you are going, we're supposed to be making disciples of all the nations. And it starts right in Acts 1.8. He says it begins in Jerusalem, right where we live. And we take it to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. I have the privilege of, I, I was able to work with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes for a little over nine years, five years as a state director, and four years in Kansas City at the national office. Worked with some great guys like Gordon Teeson. Been able to be an instructor at the Billy Graham Schools of Evangelism. Was blessed to be able to be a part of putting together the more than winning track for the FCA ministry back in 1986. So I love evangelism. I love to tell people about Jesus because I love Jesus so much and he's just done an amazing work in my life. Just to give you a little uh, insight into my life, just uh, married our second daughter on uh, Sunday, a couple of days ago, a few days ago. She's a missionary in Malaga, Spain with Campus Crusade for Christ, married the National Director of Athletes in Action. And she looked beautiful. I stood up there marrying, I had the privilege of officiating the ceremony, and I said, I feel like I'm handing a Stradivarius violin into the hands of an 800-pound gorilla. And uh, I love my Dear daughter, she's serving the Lord. We've got another daughter with two grandkids. Uh, daughter and her husband live in Lynchburg, Virginia. She's in ministry. And I've got another daughter at Spo- uh, Spokane, Washington, uh, going to Moody Bible Institute. A son who's about six foot four, 210 pounds, good looking. Great kid. Goes to the University of Minnesota. And he's in the Carlson School of Business. And then our uh, 
another daughter who just started working with Athletes in Action up at the University of Minnesota. They all love the Lord. No greater joy in my life than to know that my kids walk in truth. So, And I have one wife, dear Wendy, you've been married. It'll be 30 years here coming up. She's my righteous fox. I met her... Uh, she was at the University of Minnesota, jumping up and down on the sidelines as a cheerleader. And when I first saw her, all my thoughts weren't totally spiritual. And I, I looked at her, and I was really attracted to her. Met her through the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. We are happily married and really love the Lord, love serving the Lord. Live in Eden Prairie and been a missions pastor now for over 25 years. Just a... Uh, a little bit about Grace Church. We've got about 5,000 people in the congregation. God's doing some great things there. We're in 37 countries, 101 missionaries, 23 sister church relationships. So I travel quite a bit. Getting on a plane on Monday, I'll be uh, heading to Spain and then Helsinki, Finland, and then I get back and I go to Vietnam. We'll be training. We're doing church planting in uh, northern India. Last year, we were able to graduate 700 church planters in in Pakistan. They go through a year and a half of training and they have to plant a church before they graduate. So it's really quite exciting. I came to know Jesus when I was about your age. I grew up in the church. I had a serious drug problem growing up. You know what my drug problem was? My parents drugged me to church every Sunday. <laughs> and some of you have that same drug problem. And I'm thankful that they did. But I kind of resented it because I, I was disillusioned with organized religion. I found it kind of empty and meaningless. I saw a lot of hypocrisy, at least from my perspective, and it was probably more my problem than anybody in the church. I love sports. I was one of those kids that I, I always had a ball in my hand. I loved to play basketball, football, baseball, anything that had a ball with it. And when I was in seventh grade, I got to play on the eighth grade football team. I was in eighth grade, I got to play on the ninth grade team. As a sophomore, I played on the varsity yeah, North St. Paul, it's one of the big suburban schools in the Twin Cities, so it's kind of a neat deal. Only two sophomores got to play on the varsity. Is, and ended up being the most valuable athlete in my high school, and that really became a god for me. I, it was the most important thing in my life, and I really didn't have time for Jesus. I'd kind of appease my parents, go to church on Sunday. In my senior year, I'm captain in all three of my sports, football, basketball, and baseball. Went to state in football and in basketball. Then I got a call on a Sunday morning, and here I am, I'm dating Kiki Murphy, the homecoming queen, and it seems like life is really good. But you know, sometimes people act like they've got it all together on the outside, but inside they're really, really hurting. And that was my life. There's a philosopher, Pascal, Blaise Pascal once said, there's a God-shaped void or emptiness in the heart of every man that can only be filled by God himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And I had uh, this gaping hole in my soul. And I was trying to stuff sports in there and all this th these things that were just feeding my ego. And I was all about Dave Gibson, all about me. And I got a call on a Sunday morning that really shook me up. A good friend of mine, Mark McChesney, he was the other guy as a sophomore, was able to play on the varsity football team, really quite a good athlete, very good friend of mine get a call and they found, they discovered that Mark's body was floating in the Mississippi River. He had uh, jumped off the high bridge and committed suicide. And it really, really shook me up. For the very first time, 
I started to really reflect on the real issues of life. Life's most important questions. What's my purpose in life? Let me ask you, what's your purpose in life? Why are you here? And then really challenged me to think about where am I going to spend eternity? And what did I have to offer my friend Mark yeah, that would uh, have prevented him from becoming so desperate that he decided to take his, his life? It really, really bothered me. Well, shortly after that, I was drugged to church again. And I'm really thankful that I was. And I thank the Lord for parents who drag you to church. We need that more in our society. And you ought to thank your parents for allowing you to go to a Christian school. You ought to thank your parents for taking you to church. So I worked at a Christian drug rehabilitation center when I got out of college. And I saw the other side of it. Those lives that were destroyed by sin and drugs and addictions. I just spoke to the Minnesota Teen Challenge group, 350 people who were either drug addicted or prostitutes and lives that were just down a, heading down a life of destruction. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. And they probably didn't have parents who influenced them for Jesus. So be very, very thankful for the influence that you have here, for your teachers and your administrators and people who are trying to pour a positive influence in your life and to introduce you to Christ and the truth that will set you free. Well, at, at that church service, I, the title of the sermon was The Ultimate Rejection. The Ultimate Rejection. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, In that day, in that day, many people are going to say to me when we stand before the Lord, they're going to say, Lord, Lord, let's look at the passage here. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. He says, you'll know trees by their fruit. There's two roads. There's a path that, there's our narrow path that leads to life. Few are those who find it, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many are the multitudes who choose its easy way. In verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a lot of people in the church saying, Lord, Lord. There's a lot of people in this school saying, Lord, Lord. That's people who profess Jesus Christ. They're professing Christ. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. They don't possess Jesus Christ. You could profess Jesus Christ without possessing Jesus Christ. There's a big difference. For 17 years of my life, I had a a huge gap between my head and my heart, a 12-inch gap from the head to the heart. And they say the longest, most difficult journey in the world is the journey from the head to the heart. The Bible says in James 2, 19, you believe in God, you do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. This guy who was filled with demons saw Jesus coming in the Gospels, and they recognized Jesus for who he is. They said, they screamed out, Why have you come to torment us, O Son of the living God? They knew who Jesus was. And they're not going to be in heaven. So there are people who will profess Christ. They'll say, Lord, Lord, they won't enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And it says, On that day, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, again, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? That's people who practice religion, 
but have no personal relationship. There are people who profess Jesus Christ, but they don't possess Jesus Christ. People who practice religion, they go to church. They go to Christian school. You know, just because a mouse lives in a cookie jar doesn't make him a cookie. And just because a person lives in a garage doesn't make him a car. And just because a person goes to church doesn't make him a Christian. Just because a person, you as a student, go to Nebraska Christian, just because you're here in this Christian environment doesn't make you a Christian. So there's people who practice religion, but there's no personal relationship. Here's the ultimate rejection. You can be rejected by a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and it hurts. I've, I've been there, done that. And it got dumped in high school, and it hurts. You can lose a job. You can be rejected by a friend or be cut from a ball team. And you feel this re- sense of rejection and, and being let down. But there is no rejection like the one Jesus describes here. He says, and then I will declare to them four words. I never knew you. We can say, well, I know Jesus, but would he claim to know you? Would he claim to have a relationship with you? And I'm sitting there as a 17-year-old young man on a Sunday morning, got drugged to church, and it was like God was speaking right to me. I never knew you meet. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's the ultimate rejection when we stand before the holy, righteous God of the universe when the Bible says that someday every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. LeBron James will confess. Madonna will confess. Katy Perry will confess. Mother Teresa will confess. Adolf Hitler will confess. Michael Jackson will confess. Michael Jordan will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. Barack Obama will confess. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. And you will confess. And you will confess. And you will confess. You will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And here's the options. He, He will either be your Lord and Savior and say, Enter in. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. We will confess that he is Lord. Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, the devil will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But there will be those, he will be Lord and judge, and he will say, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. And that option is you'll be perishing in hell, the only option, or you'll be experiencing paradise in heaven through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Two questions the pastor asked that day. How will you answer these questions? Have you come to the place in your spiritual life where you know for certain, without a shadow of a doubt, you know that you know that you know, that if you died today, you'd go to heaven? Do you know for certain? If you died today, you'd go to heaven. And I'm sitting there, well, I don't know. The Bible says these things are written in order that you can know that you have eternal life. And I'm going to share a lot of that with you here today. How you can be confident in the gospel. How you can be confident in your relationship with God. 
that you can know that you know that you know if you die today, you're going to go to heaven. And Jesus Christ did not just come to save you from the hell you're going to. He came to save you from the hell you're going through right here on earth. And that's good news when I'm sharing that with the Teen Challenge people who are just, their lives are being destroyed by drugs. They're living the lives of destruction and that Jesus Christ can save us and transform us and set us on a new path. 17 years old. I took that long journey. The second question before I, I continue on is, if you were to die today and you had to stand before God, like this passage in Matthew chapter 7, and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? What will you say? Couldn't answer those questions. Man shared the gospel with me, and I took my first real step of faith in my life. And I prayed and invited Jesus Christ into my life. And he came into my life. And you know what? I didn't hear any fireworks. <laughs> I didn't start rolling in the dirt and foaming at the mouth or anything like that. But you know what? I had a peace in my heart that I never knew before. The Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And I, for the first time, the Bible says His Spirit will bear witness with your spirit that you are His child. You'll have the witness of God's Spirit. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit will bear witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. And then you have the witness of God's Word. First. John 5, 11 through 13. This is the testimony God has given us eternal life. This life is in His Son, Jesus Christ. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who have the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and those who don't have the Son of God. And there's a million and one religions out there, all trying to get to God. Chant, pray, meditate, work your way be good enough. And God is not at the top of a ladder saying, climb, climb, climb. And that's what religion is. It's man's attempts to try to get to God. But God came down on a cross. He took off his robe in heaven as the God of the universe. And Jesus Christ, where all the angels are standing around him singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he left his glory in heaven took off a robe and he took on the robe of a man and became a man. God came down and he hung on a cross. And he hung there and he said, it is finished. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It is finished. Paid in full. And he breathed his last. Tetelestai is the word in the original language. It was a term meaning the debt has been paid. He paid for my sin. He paid for your sin. He took our sin on his body on the cross, and he was buried, and he rose again. And he's alive today. And he came into my life, and he shook up my life, turned my life upside down. And friend, if you're here today, maybe you've heard about Jesus. You know the Christmas story. You know the Easter story. Maybe you know a lot of the other stories of the Bible. But you're professing Jesus Christ, but you don't possess Jesus Christ. I'm going to challenge you today. Open your heart to Christ. Say, I want to possess you, Lord. I want to receive you. Maybe you're practicing religion, but there's no personal relationship. 
if that's the case, you're going to be perishing in hell rather than experiencing paradise in heaven and understanding that walk with Christ. I just wanted you to, I wanted to share that with you because that's the foundation of my life. I went off to college. I got recruited by about 25 schools to play football. I loved football. My freshman year, I had an incapacitating injury. It was the first time I'd ever had an injury that took me out. I was carrying the ball off tackle. I had a guy on my back, and a defensive tackle came and caught me from the outside in and tore out my knee. I, uh, I did continue to play after that, but I had a knee surgery. I ended up having three knee surgeries. I kind of hobbled my way through my college career. Had a shoulder operation. I had two head concussions and nose, broke my nose, got kicked in the nose my sophomore year. Offensive guard's foot came through my face mask and busted my nose. Second series of the game, we had whites. I was, my mom's up in the stands crying. My son's dying out there. I had blood all over me. The ref says, you okay, son? 42. I said, yeah, I'm fine. And Busted my nose. Three broken ribs, three knee operations, and a bunch of sprained ankles. And I don't recommend that you play football. Pick another sport. <laughs> no, I love football. Still love to watch it, but... I found all of my identity, all my security wrapped up in that stuff, even as a young Christian. It was perform, 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 and seeking the approval of other people. I wanted to have other people to like me. You know, there's this approval addict that people live just for the approval of others, and they want to perform. You've got to perform. If you do well, you feel good about yourself. If you don't do well, you, it just destroys you. And athletes are notorious for that. And you know what? The Lord got me off the performance treadmill. It kind of stripped me of my securities, and I realized that Jesus Christ is all I'm going to live for. And gang, here's, here's what I want you to really remember. There's only three things that count for eternity. Only three things. Jesus Christ is eternal. Jesus said, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's word is eternal. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. And there's one other thing. What do you think it is? The souls of men. They'll either spend eternity in hell, separated from God, or eternity in heaven. And I realized at that point, I wanted to live for what counts for eternity. Let me read something to you here. hundred years from now, will it matter if you've made millions of dollars, drove a convertible Mercedes, Graduated from college, played in the Final Four. No, the only thing that will be important then is whether you know God who created you because you will be in one of two destinations forever and ever and ever. It is very important to get people to realize that this is eternal, not temporal, things that matter. What then? One day I was talking with a 17-year-old who, uh, who worked at the mall. We were chatting about life, so I asked him, what he was going to do after high school. He said, I'm looking into some colleges and probably go to college. I asked, what then? He says, well, he answered, after I graduate from college, I'll probably get a job. And I asked, what then? I'll probably get married and have some kids. I asked again, what then? I guess I'll retire. I continued, then, what then? I guess I'll die. What then? Now, that's a good question, he said. It is a good question, one that everyone will have to answer one day. What then? You know, eternity is just like real estate. You know the three keys to real estate? Location, location, 
location. Same way with eternal life. Three things. There's nothing more important, you guys. What are you living your life for? Don't waste your life. Location, location, location. Are you going to spend eternity with the Lord or are you going to spend eternity in hell? And I tell you, I have some, I've had some buddies say, oh, I don't mind going to hell. All my buddies are going to be there. And I say, if you could see hell, it would literally scare the hell right out of you. Read Luke chapter 16 sometime. There's a rich man and a poor beggar named Lazarus. Lazarus was eaten from the crumbs of this rich man's table. He, could, he was very, very impoverished, but he had a heart for God. Well, Lazarus is ushered into heaven. He dies and goes to heaven. You know where the rich man went? He went to Hades. And he says, in this place of torment, you read the passage. And he says, Father Abraham, he says, God, dip my tongue with a drop of water. I'm in this place of torment. You know, the Bible describes it as, as a lake of fire where the, the, the worm never dies. It burns forever and ever and ever. I don't know if you ever burned yourself, but how would you like to be swimming in a lake of fire for eternity? And here's this man in this place of torment. He says, go tell my father, go tell my brothers, go tell my family, go tell. Would you go tell them you don't want to come here? You know what? One minute in hell made this guy a flaming evangelist. I tell you, you spend one minute in hell, you'll say, go tell the whole world you don't want to come here. And I tell you, I, I live my life, you guys. Life is short. Hell is hot. And I want to do everything I can to prevent people from going there. And I live my life to depopulate hell and to populate heaven for the glory of Jesus Christ. Because in the end, nothing else matters. Well, I was broken, and God's got to break a man before he takes a man. And the Lord really broke me down and said, your security cannot be in your football. It cannot be in your popularity. It cannot be in your approval by other people. It cannot be in your performance or all these things, your, your appearance or anything. It's got to be your identity has to be completely in Jesus Christ and living for him and for his glory and his glory alone. And I tell you guys, it turned my life upside down. I planted my flag with Christ. I said, Jesus, here's my life. I got on my face in my dorm room. This struggling freshman who I was as low as a snake's belly. You know you can't get any lower than a snake's belly? And I'm just laying there and I'm crying and I say, God, here's my life. The mess that it's in. I don't even know if I'm a Christian the way I'm living. I had that first knee surgery. I went out and I got drunk on a Friday night. I'm a believer. And I got in a fight with three guys and I busted a cast I had on my leg in three spots. And I'm hitchhiking out of town, going up to the Twin Cities. Ron Hess, the state director of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, just happened to be driving down the road. I'm standing there on crutches. And Ron looked at me. He looked me in the eye and he says, Dave, are you going to make your life count for Christ? on campus. He had done some chapels for our football team. He knew that I was a Christian. I tell you, it was like the Lord just put him in right there. And I said, Lord, so I went back to my room and that's when I got on my face. And I, I said, Lord, here's my life, the mess that it's in. If you can do something with it, would you just take it? It's all yours. It's all yours. I'm all in to go all out for you, Jesus. 
And can you say that? I want to be all in with Jesus, to go all out for Jesus. I can give you all kinds of principles. I can give you all kinds of how-tos and nice, slick little methods and how to share your faith. But if there isn't something going on burning in your soul, you know, Paul talks about Romans chapter 9. He says, I have deep anguish. I wish I were accursed if it meant my brother's coming to know Jesus Christ. I say, Lord, break my heart over the things that break your heart. And I tell you, the Lord gave me two desires. I pulled a Bible off the shelf that day. It was a living Bible, and it was collecting dust. And I pulled a note out, and it was a note from my mom. It says, when you get discouraged, start reading the Psalms. And I couldn't have been more discouraged. And I started reading the Bible, and you know what happened? It was like Jesus jumping off the pages at me. He jumped off the pages at me, and he grabbed me, and he shook me up. And I fell in love with God's Word. And he gave me two incredible desires at that time, a desire for his Word. So I, I took the Bible with me wherever I went. I took it to the weight room, the locker room, the bathroom, the classroom, everywhere I took. I took the Bible with me. And I consumed the Bible, and the Bible started to consume me. And the other thing that happened, I couldn't stop talking about it. I couldn't stop talking about it. You know the way they got the early church to witness? This is witnessing evangelism 101 in the book of Acts. Let's take your hand away from their mouth. They said, we can't stop talking about that which we've seen and we've heard. They threw them into prison. They said, stop talking about Jesus. Read it in Acts 4 to 6 there. and they're, they're, they're beating these guys. They're threatening these guys. They're throwing them into prison. They said, we can't stop talking about that which we've seen and we've heard. And that started happening to me. I started telling my teammates about Jesus. I started telling our classmates about Jesus. And everywhere, I couldn't stop talking about Jesus. And we started an FCA group. And Coach Rarep, he and I were the only two, sometimes we'd be the only ones to show up. I planted my flag. I said, here it is, Lord. I'm all in. Got kind of discouraging. And I said, after my freshman year, Lord, could you send a couple of guys that were even like-minded? Sent Mark Tiemann, who became a state director, followed me in the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and Chucky Orsted, he was a great basketball player, and Chucky Orsted, a hockey player. These guys were on fire for Christ. The Bible says a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Two are better than one. If one falls, there's someone to pick him up. And find a cord of three strands here in this school, some like-minded people who are passionate about Christ. We're going to lift you up. And that's the benefit of being in a Christian environment, a Christian school. You guys are world changers. God's going to use some of you to go out and turn this world upside down for Jesus Christ. And our campus, God started working, and that little nucleus of guys grew to almost 300 people every week for FCA, studying the Bible, praying, leading people to Christ. And we prayed. We had a group of guys that met our whole senior year, and we prayed every morning for an hour that we could share Jesus with every single person on campus. And it was amazing. God just, revival broke out amongst the believers and spiritual awakening. And I pray that the Lord will never let me lose that passion for his word, for his presence, my love for Jesus Christ, and my love to share Christ with other people. So, let me give you some practical stuff on evangelism. You know, Luke chapter 6 44 to 46. Luke 6, 44 to 46. Write that down. 
He says the good man, or the good woman, there's a lot of good women here today, out of the good treasure of their heart, brings forth what is good. The evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. Now what does he say there? Verse 46. Underline that. Underline that too. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Don't do the things that I say. Matthew 4.19, he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. 95% of Christians will go to the grave without ever leading one person to faith in Jesus Christ. 95%. The greatest threat to Christianity is not communism. It's not socialism. It's not materialism. It's not any other ism. It's a silent Christian. It's a Christian who's trying to sneak into heaven incognito without ever sharing their faith. Here's some preparation for evangelism. 1 Peter 3.15, what's the first statement he makes there? Worship Christ as Lord or sanctify Christ as Lord. Is Jesus Christ Lord of your life? That's spiritual preparation. You've got to be spiritually prepared. It's not just learning the methodology, the how-tos. Where's your heart with the Lord? Are you in love with Jesus? You know, the people love to talk about the latest diet. If it really changed your life and it really worked in your life, you're going to tell everybody about it. You know, if Jesus Christ is really my best friend and I love him and he's really making a difference in my life, I'm going to want to introduce everybody to him. So spiritual preparation. Then secondly, continual preparation. Circle that word always in that passage. He says, always be ready. Continuous preparation. Be ready in season and out of season, Paul said to young Timothy from 2 Timothy 4. Be ready to what? Give the reason or a defense. Know what you believe. Know why you believe it. That's why it's great to go to a Christian school. They're teaching you what to believe, why to believe it. It's not just a blind faith. Study to show yourselves approved unto God. 2 Timothy 2.15 Study to show yourselves approved unto God. Workmen who aren't ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If you've known the Lord for a, a period of time and you don't know how to share your faith, we're being disobedient to God's word. You should be ready to give an account. And then how are we to do it? Do this with what? Gentleness and respect. That's relational preparation. Okay, here's what we do at Grace Church. Now, I'm going to challenge you guys to live your life. Could you make this commitment and say, Lord, I, want to, I don't want to be one of those 95 percenters. I want to be a 5 percenter. We call them 10 percenters at our church. We're looking for 500 people of our 5,000 that are all in to go all out. Each one, each one of you, reach one and teach one each year the rest of your life. The church would grow like this. It would multiply. It would multiply. I pray to the Lord that I, he'll give me a chance to share Jesus with at least one person every day. You know what the first rule of fishing is? What's the first rule in fishing? You've got to go where the fish are. And I can't sit behind the walls of our church without a very good fishing spot. So I go to restaurants. I go to public places. go to the health club. Got a neighborhood. I play golf with my neighbor, guy, trainer, who's just stiff-arming me. But he loves to golf. We love to play together. And I just after years, I finally laid the gospel out to him a couple of weeks ago. And he's one of these tough nuts, didn't even want to hear the word of Jesus. Reach one and teach one each year the rest of your life. Here's a definition for success in evangelism. This is from Campus Crusade for Christ. I'm not going to take credit for it. 
but it's simply sharing the good news. That's what gospel is, good news, gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit and leave the results up to God. Acts 1.8, he says, you will receive power. Dunamis, dynamite, it's explosive power. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I'm going to give you three quick approaches to evangelism that we teach, and they're all biblical. And about 1% to 2% of the people in the body of Christ have that gift. Who do you think of when you think of proclamation evangelism? Someone who stands up and, and heralds the gospel publicly to the masses. Paul in the New Testament, yeah. In Acts 2, he shares 3,000 people got saved. How about modern-day examples? Pastors. Any evangelists that come to mind? Billy Graham. Luis Palau. And they have the gift of evangelism. We need to celebrate that gift, and, but not everybody has that gift. Probably not a lot of people in this room. But it is a gift, and we celebrate it. There's another approach, that's contact evangelism. And we look at, that's people who can go up and share Christ with people they don't know. They just come into contact with someone. Most people who come across people they don't know have a hard enough time talking about the weather with someone they don't know, let alone talking about the most personal, intimate part of their lives, Jesus Christ. So that's difficult. So usually it's people who are, have a personality that works that way. And they are probably more gifted in that area. They say about 10% of the people in the body of Christ have the gift of evangelism. Probably 5% are exercising it. And so you have about 95% of the people in the church sitting on their blessed assurance, waiting for Jesus to return without ever sharing their faith. But here's a third approach that we can all do. 100% of the people in the church can do this. 100% of you can do this. This is relational evangelism. And add the word relentless relational evangelism. A lot of people do think friendship evangelism. They spend their whole lives building a friendship and they never get around to sharing Jesus. That's not what we're suggesting here. Make a friend, be a friend, bring a friend to Christ. Make a friend, be a friend, bring a friend to Christ. How do you get into a conversation about Christ? 1 Corinthians 2.14. Who's the natural man? non-Christian, and what does it say about him? Doesn't understand what? The things of the Spirit. In fact, he sa it says it's foolishness to him. So if you, I always say, if you want to look, look like a fool to a natural man, just start talking to him about spiritual things right away. It's foolishness to him. So I don't want to look like a fool to a natural man. So what I want to do is meet a natural... I think this is the hardest thing for most people sharing the gospel. Because once you get to sharing the gospel, most of us can take a four spiritual laws or a more than winning or a steps to peace with God or some type of methodology, and I'll teach you some really cool methodology here today. It's hard to get into that conversation, isn't it? So I want to meet the natural man at the point of natural understanding. I start with the secular, and I want to move it to the spiritual. So oftentimes we want to tell our story. That's our testimony. We want to tell them God's story, the gospel. Do they care about my story? No. Do they care about God's story? They might, but probably not. Whose story do they care about? Their story. So I want to take time to get to know their story. So we use a three-life story approach. Their story, my story, God's story. 
And how do I get to know their story? I take, I'm going to give you some Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people at the very end. And I thought if anybody on the planet ought to know how to win friends and influence people, it ought to be Christians. But we take a genuine interest in them. We smile, we listen, we use their name, we, we uh, have relational skills. Those are some things you can learn. But I want to start, start with secular life. If you call me at Grace Church, you say, Pastor Dave, how do I get to Grace Church? What's the first question I have to ask you? Where are you calling from? I'm going to try to get you to that destination, but I need to know where you're starting from. And that's what you're doing here. You're trying to find out where they're calling from, spiritually. So I ask just superficial questions. I sit on an airplane. I'll say, ask about their job. What do you do for a living? Introduce yourself. Use their name. Smile. Be kind. Jobs, hobbies, interests, their background, their hometown. And we're going to try to maybe go through a little role play on this. Sports. Talk about Husker football. Everybody likes to talk about Husker football. Or whatever. Home life. Now I'm getting a little more personal. Are you married? Do you have a family? Do you have, uh, tell me about your parents or your background. I had a guy on an airplane once. He asked him about his kids and he pulled out his iPad and he showed me about 150 pictures of his kids. I said, all right, I get it. You like your kids. You know? But, you know, really showing interest in them. And uh, people like to talk about themselves. A is attitudes. That's getting to know their feelings, emotions. How, how do you like your job? How do you feel about your life right now? So I'm getting a little more personal. And I'll move the conversation in this direction. It could take an hour. Or it could take five minutes. R is religion. Do you go to church? Do you have a religious background? Why or why not? Then E is eternal life. And right before I get to eternal life, I ask a question. You mind if I ask you a personal question? Why do I ask for permission? It shows respect to them, doesn't it? And it precludes the objection that I'm forcing it on them. And if they don't want me to ask a personal question, I just wipe the dust from my feet. I ask you, can I ask you a question about your spiritual life? And they say, no. I say, well, that's cool. But most people say, sure. I'm trying to build a redemptive bridge with them. I ask those two diagnostic questions. Do you know if you died today, if, you, if you'd go to heaven? If you died today and you stood before God and you said to you, why should I let you to heaven? One of the ones I like to say is, how would you describe your spiritual journey right now? I was on an airplane about a year ago going down to Fort Myers to visit my dad. My mom had just passed away the year prior. And I was sitting next to Jeff. Jeff had a long ponytail, had a He's a bunch of pierces all over, tattoos, kind of an eccentric-looking guy. Don't judge a person by the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. But he was an interesting fellow, and uh, he had had a couple of hard drinks before we took off. Because I traveled so much, I had a complimentary upgrade. So I'm sitting up there in business class with him. He's an architect. I say, Jeff, what do you do for a living? I'm an architect. He's working on a $16 million project down in Naples. He's got a 40-acre ranch out in Wyoming, three yellow labs, love to hunt got a wife, she's a teacher, no kids, they love their dogs. He was on Monday Night Football, knows Al Michaels and Dan Deerdorf, and he's running with the rich and famous, got a Rolex on his arm, and a real interesting guy. And I got down to so family background, I said, how, how, how's life going for you? He says, all right. Asked him if he liked his work and all that. I said, Jeff, do you and your wife go to church anywhere? And he snapped at me. 
says, I'm an atheist. <laughs> you didn't teach me that one in the evangelism class. You know? <laughs> We're an atheist. How do I deal with that one? The Bible says, don't be anxious in the hour of need when you're delivered up what to say, but the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. And I said, Lord, I need some help. And his, he clenched his jaw. He was angry. I said, Jeff, do you mind if I ask you how you came to that conclusion? There's something that would go on in your life that led you to becoming an atheist. He says, all the problems in the world is caused by organized religion. People killing each other in the name of God. And he says, I was in the church, and every one of them's a hypocrite. I said, Jeff, how do you really feel about that? <laughs> I mean, the guy was really animated. I looked at him. I said, you know, I don't totally disagree with you, Jeff. I don't totally agree either, but I don't totally disagree with you. In fact, you and Jesus have a lot in common. And I can really relate to you too. He says, what do you mean by that? I said, you know, you look at who followed Jesus. There's nobody who is in organized religion. Not one clergyman. In fact, Jesus' sharpest rebuke, his sharpest condemnation was to the religious leaders of the day. I said, have you ever heard of the seven woes? Woe, W-O-E. Woe. He said, no, nobody's ever heard of the seven woes. How many have heard of the seven woes in here? You guys are Bible scholars. You're great. You're teaching them great back there, you guys. Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees. He said, you hypocrites. And that's the same word that Jeff used. They're hypocrites. I said, look at Jesus calls them hypocrites too. He called them whitened sepulchers. He says, outwardly you look good. Inwardly you're like dead men's bones. He said, you're a brood of vipers, a bunch of snakes. Jesus wasn't winning any popularity contests with the religious leaders of the day. And then in one passage in John chapter 6, he says, your father's the devil. And I said, you know what? His sharpest rebuke was to the religious leaders, and he, he reached out to the prostitute, to the tax collector. In fact, the Bible says he was a friend of sinners. And you know the guys who followed him were fishermen, Farmers, tax collectors, architects, probably. And he looked at me, and I said, I can really relate to you too, Jeff. This is my story. Someone shared a message with me, changed my life. 17 years of my life, I was seeking answers to two of most life's important questions. What's my purpose in life? Where will I spend eternity? While growing up, my family regularly attended church. I learned about God, but early on, I became very disillusioned with the church. In organized religion, as I observed the inconsistencies of lives of many within the church, I had a little knowledge about God, but I never grasped how to know him personally. I had a 12-inch gap between my head and my heart. The philosopher Pascal said there's a God-shaped void in the heart of every man that can only be filled by God himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Jeff said, can I have that? I said, no. <laughs> yeah, I said, sure. And he looked at me, he said, you know what, Dave? I guess I don't have as big a problem with Jesus as I do organized religion. I said, Jeff, that's a great place to start. He says, I like you. He says, you know what? Normally if a person had talked to me about religion, I'd punch him in the mouth. So that's good to know. <laughs> I should tell me. But you know, if I would have started out talking to Jeff about, you want to hear my story about Jesus, what Jesus did to me? Boom. I'd probably be missing a couple teeth right now. But I got, took time to get to know his story. And Jeff didn't come to Christ. 
I said, Jeff, this explains how I came to know Jesus and how you can know him too. He says, I'd like to take that and read it, Dave. Thanks. He says, I really like you. I said, I'm going to pray for you, Jeff. You know, one plants, the Bible says, another waters, and then God brings forth the increase. So that he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but it's God who makes it grow. You know, one of my goals is to set up the next guy. I want that encounter with me to be a positive encounter with Jesus. So that when they come across the next person, I'm not going to go up and buttonhole them. I'm not going to say, you're going to burn it, burn or burn, you're going to go to hell. Jesus met people at a point of interest and he met them at a point of need. Write that down. He met people at a point of interest and he met them at a point of need. Find out what people's interests are. Find out what their needs are. Find that need and start to meet it. And you're doing ministry. And then I want to transition into, this is getting to know their story. S-H-A-R-E. Secular, home, attitudes, religion, eternal life. People laugh at when we go on trips around the world. They see me talking to cab drivers and people on planes. They would just watch me asking these questions. And they know right where I'm headed. And being very intentional. And ask the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom when to stop. And it takes the pressure off of you. I found out years ago I played a lousy Holy Spirit in people's lives. Quick review. S-H-A-R-E. What's S? Secular life. H, home life, A, attitudes, R, religion, E, eternal life. You've been listening to a message by Dave Gibson, who is the evangelism and discipleship pastor at Grace Church of Edina, Minnesota. Well, this wraps up the program today. You've been listening to Truth and Focus. For my co-host, Josh Cumston, this is Gordon Thiessen. Thanks for joining us as we encourage, engage, and equip Christians in today's culture war while bringing the truth in focus.